Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Future Classics. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me for Future Classics this week, David Luzader. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. I love this movie. I'm excited to talk about it. And uh, having rewatched it again for the show, I might come in immediately contradicting my own opinion, but I'm still very excited. So we'll get into it. Uh, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I used to feel like a smart person, but without 27 syringes stuck in my head, I think I'm just underperforming at this point. I know, I know. Do you even brain lift, bro? I know, do I even brain? Can I even brain without (laughs) the syringes stuck in my head? One can only aspire to Capaldi. All (laughs) righty. Well, this week, (laughs) we did watch a film that I deemed was a future classic. It was my turn around the wheel. But I do want to announce next week's film first, if you'd like to follow along. It is an around-the-world pick that has to be an international one. It's from David. What will we be watching, David? It's been a hot minute since I brought a, an, uh, an anime film here, and I thought that I would bring us something, uh, you know, something a little bit light, but still really fun, great visuals. We're watching 2010's Summer Wars. Very cool. I have not seen this one. It's a fun one. I think I think you'll both have a, a lot of fun with it. No, And there'll be a, there's still enough meat there for a good discussion. Excellent. Very excited. Well, Summer Wars, check it out for next week. But this week, we're getting down and dirty and gory with The Suicide Squad. I repeat, The Suicide Squad from 2021. When the U.S. needs to conduct a black op on the island of Corto Maltese, handler Amanda Waller must press The Suicide Squad, a ragtag collection of superheroed criminals, into service. So let me start by giving a brief synopsis about why I chose this as a future classic which is very hard to do considering it's been out for less than a month. We uh, don't even get to ask you first? What? Go ahead and ask me. Yeah. <laughs> Brett. Brett, why? why do this you? movie is so new. I know. Yeah. Why? So, there we go. I feel I'm better gonna now. I'm going to put a bunch of caveats on this. Yeah, I'm going to put a bunch of caveats on this. Is that I think that within the echelon of superhero movies, this could be a future classic. So I'm not comparing this to The Dark Knight or something like that, which is a future classic Period. I think that within the fan base of people who love superhero movies, this could be a future classic. And my reasoning for that is a couple things. First of all, the bizarre circumstances in which it was made allowed for near complete creative control. This was at the time that James Gunn was canceled for about a week and a half, got dropped by, you know, Marvel, got hired by DC, and they told him, hey, do whatever you want. And this is what whatever you want looks like. And it's bonkers. This shit is insane. <laughs> and it's not. Deadpool insane because Deadpool is so overtly a comedy that it leans more heavily into the ridiculous. Whereas I feel this still respects and plays with some fairly meaningful storylines with very cool characters that we've been introduced to for a long time. People like Harley Quinn. The other thing is this is a really, really, really fun movie. And I feel like we've been so inundated with superhero movies for so long. It's hard to do something different that makes it fun, that makes you come out of it saying, I saw something new and different. And I, everyone I saw that came out of this felt that way. And then the last part I'll say is that I also think this is indicative of like a turning point for DC. We're starting to see 
DC movies, especially in the last couple years, uh, stuff like Shazam, Zack Snyder's Justice League that finally was able to be released. Like we're starting to see this era of DC where it's not quite as bad anymore. And they maybe can go toe to toe with Marvel on some things. And this is one of those things where they hit it out of the park with the box office, especially considering it was a split box office because it was released at home and hit it out of the park with the reviews. So I just think like as we might possibly enter a world in which we see James Gunn's DC universe because Zack Snyder is dead to DC, like we might see some really cool stuff come out of this movie. So then that's the groundwork I'm laying down. Um, so we'll go through our discussion topics. We've got a whole bunch of them. And I think the first one I want to drop right away, because it is literally the first five minutes of the movie, is uh, James Gunn's gambit to kill half the cast in the first five minutes. Now, pause. This is spoiler alert territory. Don't listen to this if you're, if you're going to watch it, because we're about to spoiler some of the really fun stuff in this movie. But... There's a ton of well-known actors in this movie. He outfitted this movie with a pretty great cast, at least a well-known cast, especially in contrast to the original Suicide Squad. Uh, and he kills half of them in five minutes. <laughs> I saw it coming, though. Did you? You know, I saw Harley Quinn and then like six characters I didn't recognize. Uh, like five of those six didn't recognize at all. But uh, mind you, I'm mostly a Marvel girl. But these are all people I'd never heard of except for Boomerang. And I'm just like, oh, oh, they're all going to die except for Harley Quinn. I don't know who any of these people are. But on the flip <laughs> side of that, they hold, they keep like Ratcatcher 2 and Bloodsport and uh, Polka Dot Guy, like people that are also not well-known DC entities. Yeah, but they're a way off somewhere yeah, else. They're, they're, in a different, they're in a different part of the movie that we hadn't gotten to yet. Uh, while distraction team one is getting just absolutely, absolutely murdered. And I, and I mean, I didn't expect, I expected a high body count in this movie. I guess I just thought, and, and I will praise the, um, the marketing for this film. I think they did a pretty good job of making it seem like, well, you know, at least, uh, Michael Rooker's probably going to be around for a little bit. Like we'll get a couple Michael Rooker scenes, Maybe like may, I, I had hopes for Flula. Just I, I, I always want more <laughs> yeah. Flula. Uh, I love your accent. American women all love accents. We do, because we don't got none. But they were just all dying, you know, within the first five minutes, and so I was just surprised at how quickly all of them died. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. And my favorite part, uh, as a result of all this, is that Pete Davidson rented out a theater for it to show people this movie and i'm like dude <laughs> you're you're the first one out of the three minute mark <laughs> that's a pretty good uh pretty good troll i'm hoping that you're trying to do on people but uh, yeah i suppose yeah i guess he's the first to really go we think weasel's the first one out that's true no. <laughs> yeah weasel makes Poor it weasel that's true i guess we don't find out till the very end that he's he's yeah wandering which off. which i guarantee you will never come back up in any other property they just want you to know that weasel is exploring this island out in the wilderness is it a werewolf i never met a werewolf before played by sean gunn uh james gunn's son but yeah, I mean, no, so just brother, his brother, not oh, his, son. oh, I'm sorry, his brother. <laughs> um, so I mean, just in the first couple minutes, we lose Michael Rooker as Savant, Nathan Fillion as TDK, 
Pete Davidson as Blackguard. Flula as Javelin. Oh, we lose Captain Boomerang, even though he's like the one holdover from the original movie besides Harley Quinn. We lose him in the first five minutes. I never miss Jai Courtney. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I have to admit that Nathan Fillion's arms coming off and gently, gently. So good. (laughs) Gently slapping the faces of the of the soldiers. (laughs) It's just so weird. That was just so oddly upsetting. I mean, it's not like it's bloody or anything, but it's just, it was, I was just like, uh, ugh. You know, I had this look on my face like when my cat drops a bomb in the litter box, you know? And they, like, they'd like they built him up even a little bit in the short amount of time. They're like, what do you do? Like, oh, you're TDK. And then it's just, his arms come off and float. Apparently his legs yeah. can come off, too, from what I understand of the character. Well, thank God that didn't happen. <laughs> right but but as all these people are just getting massacred because they are the decoy team as david said we do manage to hold on to a handful of people including Bloodsport, sport Elba, peacemaker john cena rat catcher two i'm blanking on who plays her portuguese actress i don't know <laughs> rat catcher two <laughs> uh king shark sylvester stallone Along with uh, Polka Dot Guy. Well, the only ones, the the only ones from that opening scene that that make it are Harley Quinn and uh, Rick Flag. Another, the, you know, the two other right. holdovers from the the first one. Well, and and uh, Viola Davis. Yes, yeah. So we end up being introduced to the second team that is largely the team that survives the movie, or or at least is the the core of the movie. And I have to say, for killing so many of the characters off the bat, especially great actors. One thing I was surprised at was. I thought they had really strong chemistry between the leads that stuck around and probably mm-hmm. culling the herd might've been a good thing because mm-hmm. there were a lot of people <laughs> at the beginning yeah, and, and we end up having these really good interactions between like peacemaker and blood sport and, and like King shark and rat catcher too. And like, we start having these interpersonal relationships between the ones it's, that are uh, left. Daniela Melchior plays right. rat catcher too. I wanted to make sure we got her, uh, got her name on there. Gotcha. Whose father, Taika Waititi, shows up for five minutes in the movie. Right. I also want to give credit to uh, Steve Agee, who was the on-set King Shark. Oh, yes. Oh, so That was not Stallone on set in a mocap suit. Was it Stallone walking around in a giant green suit? (laughs) No. They got him for an afternoon. Stallone's too short. (laughs) He only had like nine words to say, so. Yeah, well, that's true. And spaced far apart as well. Yes, I will agree on uh, the the chemistry. Um, I mean, I know both of them surprisingly good. Yeah, I mean, I know both of them have been on separate Fast and Furious movies, and I just God, I love Idris Elba's career. I yeah. I love that this guy is doing whatever he wants. He's not afraid to do like superhero movies, do weird roles, make weird art projects and still like give great performances in like more serious things. I just love that he is having a blast and doing what he wants to do. And it really, I think it really shows. Yeah. This is week two of Idris Elba appreciation. So every week is Idris Elba appreciation week. What do you Yeah, I mean, I can still talk (laughs) about how great he is next week. Even though he's not in the movie. Well, yes. I, I did just look it up, though. I did not realize that he was the bad guy in a Ghost Rider movie. Major Selva? <laughs> so he might need to revisit that. Yeah. yeah. He, like, was working pretty hard for a while before he, like, busted out onto the mainstream and was j- just doing a bunch of wacky stuff. 
Yeah. So, David, you put in our docket, you know, the compare and contrast of Bloodsport and Peacemaker, um, and also, you know, the joke about their origins. I'll, I'll let you kind of bring us back to that one. Oh, because when they introducing Bloodsport, you have Viola Davis giving this uh, as Amanda Waller, just telling these people his life story, uh, Bloodsport, Idris Elba's life story. And it's, it's, a, it's a little, like, tropey, the way that she's doing it. Oh, yeah. But it pays off because when she then introduces Bloodsport to, or not, to Peacemaker, to Bloodsport, it's the exact same origin. And I, I love that they play with, like, characters, so many characters have the same origin, but can then, like, be a bit different in their execution, as we, like, as we saw here. But I just, I love... That the way that that was like brought in, and, and I think Idris Elba's like, are you you know are you are you having a laugh? Like, is this a, is this a joke? And it's like, no, like <laughs> you're, you know, you're not as special as uh as you think. Yeah, I'm consistently surprised at you know wrestlers' abilities to be decent actors, <laughs> and there's several of it's them. Their, it's their job. But- yeah. I thought John Cena was really good in this role. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're, you're right. You're right, David. It is literally their job. Like, it is theatrics. But, yeah, I mean, John Cena's, like, kind of one of the greatest parts of this movie. I thought I was going to hate him. Me too. And they announced there's going to be a Peacemaker show. And I was like, I don't, who cares? Like, why are they doing a Peacemaker show? Uh, you have to assume. But after I saw this, I was like, yeah, I'll watch a Peacemaker show. Sure. <laughs> I'll see where, where this goes. <laughs> I'm just wondering, I mean, I bet there's a good chunk of John Cena's fan base who either won't get or will be insulted by the message that they're trying to get across with Peacemaker being willing to achieve peace and he doesn't care how many men, women, and children he has (laughs) to kill to get it. (laughs) Oh, man, that line is so good. Uh, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible line, but... He the way he says it, like with conviction, <laughs> he delivers it well. Mm-hmm. He does, and there is this, you know, there is this like Western imperialism side of the movie that that Peacemaker embodies, right? And I mean, the whole movie's poking fun at with this fictional regime of um, Corto Maltese, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see where they go with the show with that. James Gunn's attached to it, which is cool. Like he's still directing it and writing it. I would love to see if. Bloodsport shows up because I feel like Bloodsport can be his foil, um, but maybe it's above Idris Elba's pay grade. I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, or below, below his pay grade. His pay rather, grade. Right? Yeah. yeah, I don't. I mean, this dude. Hi, Topanga. <laughs> yeah, hi. She's here. Uh, like Idris Elba, let us never forget, was in a Macklemore song. <laughs> so, I mean, the he'll he's up for it. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. So. uh yeah, I, I do love the dichotomy between those two characters. Nicole, you threw in our document, Viola Davis. Is she the greatest actress of her generation? It's just, well, number one, there's a scene where she goes toe-to-toe with a furious Idris Elba holding, like, a pen to her throat and doesn't even blink. She's still more intimidating than he is in that room. Mm-hmm. She just makes it look absolutely effortless yeah this is a woman who walks into a room owns it and has utter confidence in her abilities and power and what her mission is for all the complaints about suicide squad of which there are plenty uh one of them was not viola davis like she was the one thing that everybody was like 
she was fantastic as Amanda Waller, perfectly cast. I was very glad to see her return in this. And God, what she's like, what she's doing with the like the never changing face. But you're right, Nicole. She just exudes this authority. And at any given time, I'm more terrified of her than I am of big beefy John Cena, who can kill you 10 different ways with one mm-hmm. bicep <laughs> right and i mean the only only humor she ever shows is maybe this hint of uh, sardonic maybe now and then oh yeah but she never smiles no but she's there's there's a little bit of a satisfaction when uh even if it's against her own plan these people fail and die <laughs> i mean there's a little bit of that with her and you i mean and, you know I started thinking about, you know, the greatest actress, like the modern actress, or I guess of her generation, rather. And I'm thinking like people like Kate Blanchett and, you know, Helen Mirren and stuff. And like, there's a lot of them, but Viola Davis is, I mean, this is the third time we've just rhapsodized about how amazing she is. I mean, I've brought her in two different August Wilson adaptations, and she's a complete rock star in those. Uh, She's just a phenomenal actress, and she embodies these incredibly different characters so incredibly well with such an incredible range and i just have nothing but love for her and i'm mm-hmm. so glad you know as david said that they brought her back for this movie because something i really admire about james gunn making this movie is that you know david ayer the guy who made the or ayers whichever the guy that made the first suicide squad movie was really all on board promoting this one he's on twitter talking about how great it is sharing links to it you know talking like geeking out about James Gunn over shots like he would take screenshots on HBO Max and then share them on Twitter and say what camera lens did he use for this and James Gunn was so reciprocative of that and I really do love that because it was really easy for this to be an opportunity to just shit on the previous movie and it wasn't they maintained a little bit of the lore some of the actors they made a story that doesn't retcon anything that happened prior or do disservice to any of the actors they didn't bring along for the ride the second time around or chose not to will smith uh and they just it's it's just a it's respectful movie making and i can't help but admire it for that because it's just the love of the art and both directors get it and i really really love that about this movie well i mean it's very clear from what happened with guardians of the galaxy and how the cast supported James Gunn wholeheartedly is that people love working with him. They love doing projects with him. He comes super enthusiastic, super prepared. He's ready to go. He's having a ball. Everybody else has ball because he's so happy about being there. So, yeah, I watched a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, at least the the little promotional tidbits they had on HBO Max and he is clearly having a grand old yeah. time. He's grinning the whole time. Yeah. He's directing everything. And uh, yeah, it, it shows. And it's nice when people have directors who actually like their actors and like the process of movie making. So, yeah. you know, that's good. I like, I like to see a happy-looking set. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I, I, you know, there's some stuff even in this movie... Um, and I, and I like James Gunn. There's just like some stuff he does in like each of his movies that isn't my favorite, but still like him as a, as a person and as like as a worker, as a director, I really admire and respect. And, and, I, and you can tell 
uh, the stuff that I don't like is so small compared to typically what I do like about his films. And you can tell the people that are there that are on set are happy to be there. Like you're saying, Nicole, like you always see it in the way that he interacts with them and laughs with them and is always like smiling while he's working. Like that really does kind of come through his movies that he makes movies that he wants to be fun and he's having fun while making them. And that, that really like comes into the final product. Oh, and by the way, Brett, he mostly uh, shot this on red cameras, on uh, gimbals most of, of the time. Of course he did. Sure. Yes, and I, I also heard he was he was talking with Ayer about how using IMAX was particularly exciting for him because there's a lot of really tall shots in this movie, particularly with the tower toward the end, that you don't get mm. to see if you're not shooting in IMAX. So I, I got to learn all sorts of fun inside baseball about the cinematography of this between <laughs> those two. But you guys are totally right. No, he, he does have this rapport with all of his actors. It does seem like they all seem to adore him. Uh, and he's got this level of unrestrained insanity going on in this movie that you don't quite get in a Marvel movie with like Guardians. And now, granted, Guardians, if you remember back to the first Guardians, that was one of the most out there Marvel experiences any of us had ever had. It was so different than anything that came before it. But he still has, and he's expressed this openly working within the bubble of of what Disney and Marvel want can can be restrictive and difficult for the creative process. And DC just gave him carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And who knows if that'll be more appealing to him over the long term. I believe he did say that Guardians is his last foray in Marvel, the third one. Mm. But there's signature parts of his style that linger on into this one, and particularly his soundtrack. Uh, boy, does he love those like a retro... You know, classic rock hits just blaring through each scene. There will come a day, and youth will pass away. What will they say about me? When the end comes, I know there's just a trickle dose. Life goes on without me, cause I ain't got nobody. Oh, and there's nobody. Um, you know, I know we, when we all saw the first Guardians and we're hit in the face with Guardians and, you know, Bob Seger and that sort of stuff. And the same thing's happening here. Yeah. I mean, come and get your love. Got everybody. Everybody was like, wait, what? You know, <laughs> and yeah, then right? they all went along with it. And, um, you know, this one, I knew, I knew even before like any image of the actual movie was on screen i knew why brett loved this movie because you hear Folsom prison blues starting up before you see a single thing and i'm like oh there we go they had brett from second one of this okay, he's easy to please and there's nothing wrong with that Hello, i'm johnny cash I hear the train a coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. Yes, um, there's a great quote from him where he says, It was either Folsom Prison Blues, which of course is at the very beginning of the movie, or it was the Pixies, Hey, which I've been wanting to use forever. Uh, You know, from Hey, been dying to meet you. Uh, I had thought, oh, that'd be great for a Guardians of the Galaxy movie. 
but then there's all the horse talk. You can't really use it in a Guardians movie. <laughs> but I love that song. It's a good slow walk. And what better thing to walk do than the Pixies Hay? Uh, no, I mean, yeah, you're right. It starts off with Folsom Prison, but then like it has like people who died as all the people are dying in the beginning. And uh, just just a ton of, of great music in there. I, I really admire him as as a connoisseur of film soundtracks. And it's very clear that he painstakingly organizes the soundtrack. And bear in mind, we're talking about the soundtrack, not the score here, you know, and there are a handful of movies that I can think of with very, very definitive soundtracks that are not meant to be music movies. You know, I'm not talking about walk the line or something like that. Um, and James Gunn movies fall into that category. Like, I'm pretty sure that we own a Guardians soundtrack on vinyl, which I would never buy, but I would buy because it's his selections of music. It's his playlist, and he's got great taste. So, I mean, that's that's a signature style. It definitely carries over from, you know, from Marvel. Yeah. yeah. I've got the soundtracks. I personally rearranged them into chronological <laughs> order as they appear in the film, but that's just me. <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> uh, David... Dust Malkian? How do you pronounce his name? Uh, D- Dust Malkin? David, uh, yeah, Dust Malkian. I've only heard it like once. That's my best guess. Hey, everybody, I'm Dave Dismalchin. He's a modern day that guy, as you put David. Uh, this is Polka Dot oh, Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I was like, oh, it's that yeah. guy from Ant Man. Right, from, from Ant Man? <laughs> oh, he is that guy. Uh, he, wow, you're totally he's, right, David. He's in, he's in The Dark Knight. He's in, uh, what's that, that Jake Gyllenhaal, Hugh Jackman movie, like, Prisoners? Um, yeah, I mean, he's just, like, he just shows up in, in these movies. And I think I've talked about this podcast before. It's called uh, I Was There Too. Yeah. Uh, not currently running. Uh, Matt Gorley did it. It's, it's a great podcast. If you like this show, you'll, you'll probably love that. But he, he had David S. Malkin on it. And they talk a bit about um, like one movie, but then just kind of talk about all the different stuff that he's been in. And, I, and that really kind of keyed me in of like, oh, yeah, I've seen this guy in like a bunch of films. And he really is like someone you recognize, but you probably don't know his name. The last name is hard to say. I, yes, <laughs> it is. Yeah, he was in Blade Runner twenty. Oh my god, but he has a how many people, resume of small roles. But how many people even know his first yeah. name? Right? They don't like you. Don't think like oh, it's that David d- d- something guy. You're just like oh, it's that guy. <laughs> uh, and also is in Dune, arguably his biggest role yet. If it's not which one of the big bads? He's the sandworm. Um, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Peter Dave Rise. Oh, okay. All right. So. Uh, He's in that, which is cool. So, yeah, he's having... I, there was an article about him not too long ago. I'm blanking on where. If I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes where he was talking about kind of the renaissance of his career in the last yeah. year because he just happened to be getting all these roles that he's been trying to get for, you know, over a decade. Right. Pretty cool to see him getting. Yeah, usually the overnight successes, there's usually about at least 10 or 12 years of work mm-hmm. yeah, right. toiling away in the background before that happens. Yeah, and, um, and, I think, and I think he's great in this movie. I think he... Uh, really does a lot to make Polka Dot Man interesting. And and yeah. I appreciate that line of like, I thought you were the crazy one. Oh, I am. Uh, <laughs> but having him play like just this really deadpan kind of quiet character, like they could have had him. Oh, I'm, I'm insane because my mom made me crazy. And we'll talk about that. Can we talk uh, about his mommy issues? Well, no, I mean, you have to have a contrast with Harley Quinn. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, yeah, good point. That's what I'm saying. You can't have them both be mentally unwell in the same way. Mm-hmm. 
Agreed. And I also love that the burn, the slow burn to Polka Dot Man, because it's so long before you figure out what he does. And like, yeah. there's a gag at the beginning of the movie where John C is like, what, does he shoot Polka Dots? And like, that's exactly what he does. <laughs> right. What else would you expect? But it's glorious. Which is not what his comic counterpart did. His comic counterpart had like the Polka Dots did different things. So... Okay. He would, it would be like, oh, like razor blade polka dot and like throw that and it would, you know, be throwing oh, out Batman. Um, or, you know, like other, they were, all had little tricks and stuff to them. So this is a whole new interpretation of the character. Interesting. Because he also has to throw up the polka dots or else, you know, they'll consume him. Mm-hmm. I like that it was a really difficult trick to make such an innocuous looking character with such a weird, you know, he gets like big glowy dots under his skin in different bright colors. And his costume is yet somehow not circus-like because they made it gray with all these weird polka dots on it, which is strange. But they bring an actual like pathos to this, what could be a very clownish character. They turn into something that's really got a quite deadly ability along with crushing depression <laughs> right yeah because his he, he sees everybody as his mom who tortured quite literally it turns quite literally because <laughs> uh, his mom tortured him and his siblings trying to make a superhero and it worked on him uh, at a horrible cost yeah when starro turns into his mom <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh my god. And Polka Dot Man's death feels very fitting because like he finally gets to do something and it's meaningful mm-hmm. and then immediately gets ousted. Well they they had to. They're like, oh wait, he can actually like hurt Starro. We get we gotta make this movie run for another fifteen minutes. <laughs> so Right. <laughs> kill that guy. Uh no, no. And he's also like the most empathetic of any of them, like perhaps with the exception of Bloodsport, because Bloodsport get this like fatherly bond with Ratcatcher 2. Because halfway through the movie, when they're running through the tower, and he's like, "Where is God? What's the guy's name?" Um, no, like the ran their their bus driver. <laughs> oh, oh yes, the bus driver <laughs> who's with them for a while that just like hangs out with them and doesn't leave. Yeah. Like has every opportunity right. early on to not be a part of this, but becomes part of the gang. And polka dot man is the only one who notices. It, that's one of the no, best. Rat catcher too notices too. Yeah. Okay. Like he's been with us the whole time. That's one of the best bits of the movie though. I like <laughs> when, when he dies and uh, it's Milton, Milton and they're all like, Milton. Yes. who yeah. is Milton? <laughs> like nobody knows who that is because he was just tagging along and then at the end uh when harley quinn's like i thought you were i thought you were milton <laughs> <laughs> uh i also feel like this movie speaking of harley quinn margot robbie's harley quinn has had a lot of different iterations now under a couple different directors and even though she's had her own movie with birds of prey uh, and, and I really dig Birds of Prey, and I'm super, super, super excited that they're putting out a spinoff of it on HBO, directed by Misha Green. That's going to be rad. But in any case, um, it almost feels like Harley gets more depth in this than even in her own movie. And and I don't know what that says about Birds of Prey, because I like Birds of Prey, but I just feel like I get a clearer idea of who Harley Quinn is in this movie and a little bit more depth to her as a character. And part of that is her going through her bizarre romance with a dictator. <laughs> right. uh, but then just 
the quirks and maybe it's just she's served by really great writing in this movie but just the quirks that she has uh like in her escaping scene is the ultimate harley quinn scene to me like the perfect harley quinn scene is her escaping from the dictator's castle or whatever i don't know <laughs> fortress fortress yeah. yes yeah while they're heading out to go rescue her she's busy rescuing herself so, which I love. Mm-hmm. Right, with the flower power, like petals flying everywhere in, in lieu of blood. Okay, now that, I, that was kind of, not jarring for me, but I yeah. didn't like it because in a weird way, even with all the outrageous stuff that happens in this movie, it's oddly sort of grounded in reality, they try to come up with a reality-based explanation for everything. Yeah. And the sequence with the flowers in the hallway, I would have really loved it if she'd gotten to the end. She bumped into everybody after she escapes and she says something like, I didn't talk. They gave me five kinds of drugs and that fifth one, that was a doozy. You know, something to explain Mm-hmm. You know, the visuals that we see. Interesting. Yeah. That's because we're seeing it without anybody else witnessing it. I understand it's kind of supposed to be her perspective, but I'm not sure what the purpose of it is since she's in plenty of scenes where everything goes quite bloody as well. Why not have this be blood too? I get that. Um, and I, I think I'm I'm with you on that. Uh, where, and I and I had thought even originally, like when I'd heard it, because I'd heard about that scene, I was like, oh, like I thought somebody said, like, oh, she's on drugs, and I watched it and was just like, no, I, I, I mean, I guess, I guess not. But I think her not being the main force of the movie, like, and, and Margot Robbie loves this character, and I like that she does. Yeah, and I like that she has worked really hard to keep making movies as Harley Quinn and clearly loves it. And and I think that's all super great. I, and this is, this is a comic thing. I don't love that they've made Harley Quinn the most incredible, powerful woman out of nowhere. <laughs> like even in this, like she's like, she's this incredible fighter and like doing all these great things. And I love, and it's fun to watch. Like I'm not complaining from that perspective. This is like that comic nerd in me being like, she was a psychiatrist and now, like, and now they're like, th- there was a line where like, she might be a better fighter than Batman. It's like Batman trained with masters in mountain villages for years. <laughs> it's right. just, it's yeah. yeah. But I, uh, but that, that I can put that all aside and be like, it's really fun to watch her beat up a building full of people and save herself. With some of the movie's most interesting choreography, you know, um, yeah, I mean, apparently James Gunn wanted to bring in Jared Leto's Joker again, and that was on the table oh, early on, but ended up being scrapped because oh. I know, right? Yeah, be, uh, because there are too many continuity issues. That apparently that was the one thing where DC was like, "We've already done enough with this character that if you bring him in in the way you want to, it's just not going to make sense in the movies." Mm-hmm. So he ended up scrapping that. I don't know if that would have lent more context to her because I'm very glad. No, I'm super glad with that too. But but I I will say that I at least appreciate that the original Suicide Squad has bits and pieces of her origin story with the Joker. It's not well fleshed out in that movie, but at least we see some of the highlights, you know, of him pushing her into the vat and like doing what he did, what Batman did to him to her, and like that movie has some of that. But I the other thing I want to mention is that that movie plays with the incredibly abusive relationship her and the Joker have. And 
for as much as I quite frankly don't like Jared Leto's Joker, he is effective as the abusive controlling boyfriend. And for her to be like set free in this movie, and I know she's set she's literally set free in the emancipation of Harley Quinn. That's literally the title of the <laughs> right. movie. But for her to like have that freedom even more so in this movie is really cool. But yeah, I I agree with you. I could see that. I do appreciate that they have kept that thread to her character throughout. You know, where like even here when she when she shoots the dictator, she's like, you know, I I told myself I was gonna look for red flags, and killing kids <laughs> is a red flag. <laughs> Right. Plus, you know, she's sort of going by the logic of any club that would have me is one that I shouldn't yeah. join mm-hmm. kind of thing, where her ta- previous taste in men has proven that whoever she hooks up with is unlikely to be a good person. <laughs> and, and I like that this movie continues, and Suicide Squad attempted this, but it continues to play with the anti-hero mechanisms of these characters and making you like serial killers you know making you like mass murderers and 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 really questionable people and and there is some humanity to their characters and you want to like them even though you know they're villains and and I know we've done a lot of that in recent years with superhero films and maybe Deadpool is the impetus for some of that but they they do a great job of it with this movie and I do really care about several of these characters well, they got me to like kind of care almost immediately about Weasel without him even having any lines. <laughs> he's so cute, and with knowing that he killed twenty nine yeah. children. Weasel, he's harmless. I mean, he's not harmless. He's killed twenty seven children. I'm just like, there's just something about his you know, ugly dog uh-huh. Bill the cat kind yeah. of vibe that he's got. I I almost rage quit this movie when I thought that King Shark was going to get killed by his own kind, oh. and he just lovably finds the the oh, aquarium yeah. in the tower. The and, adorable like little anime fish in right. the aquarium, <laughs> and then, then turn around and try to eat him. Were you guys? Did you guys think King Shark was going to die like three different times? Yeah, because I really yes. did. And they and they established too that he's really hard to kill. Uh, it's basically the Hulk because when he tries to eat Ratcatcher too, and then Idris Elba has to j- shoot him a bunch, and he's like, he's totally fine. But then, right. you know, space fish don't have a problem uh, nomming on him. Oh my God, King Shark in this movie! I just there's just the, the weird childlike innocence that they've associated to you know Sylvester Stallone's acting of this character is for as much as I dislike Sylvester Stallone, is so perfect for the character. And such a great addition, because I know one of the early discussions was, who carries over from the first movie? And then if they don't carry over, what are new Suicide Squad members that get added? And King Shark is just a home run for me. And I know that people love King Shark, especially that he has the best shot in the movie when he tears a man in half. I just love me some King Shark, guys. I just love me some King Shark. Yeah, he's all right. But, but speaking right. of tearing people in half, uh, <laughs> Nicole, you did mention like everyone clearly having a blast here. But for me, the Gru undercuts the fun a bit. Close-ups of exploded faces, literally ripping people in half. The interior view of the tile penetrating Rick Flag. Yeah, this is no holds barred. It's not just no holds barred. It's also like holds your face in it from time to time. Yeah. You know, don't do not get me wrong. I have watched and enjoyed. Takashi Miike movies. I have we. I loved both the Raid movies, and there's extreme gore in a lot of that. And sometimes it's so it gets to the point of absurdity 
to the point where you are laughing at it because because it's so gory or because it's so over the top that you can't help but laugh. But this is it's it's coming in moments that are supposed to be providing serious interludes. Like we have to, I don't know. It's just it's mixing the they're they're expecting the gore to serve two purposes in this movie and i think it doesn't work that way because they use it for serious moments like when you find all the starro experiments the people that they've managed to keep alive that have been possessed but they're like half people you know large chunks of them are gone and how how long will they live with only this many parts kind of thing and we see that up close and personal and it's that's supposed to be sort of a grim wake-up call to us that, wow, this is a really serious situation, and, you know, will they be able to d- defeat the enemies? But then using it for fun, where King Shark rips a guy in half, and Astaro rips the thinker in half, and you see, like, people's faces bashed in in the middle of a battle at, that's supposed to be, like, a fun battle... And it just, it doesn't work for me to have it being used for two different purposes. Yeah. I get you. And I think I'm with you a bit. Um, There were definitely times where the violence was just like a little bit too much. And they tried to like make it just a little too real. If it had been like more comical in a way, like more over the top ridiculous, like that's not what would happen to somebody if they got like blasted in the face. But like when Pete Davidson's face gets blown off, it's like, Oh, Oh, that was like, yeah, that was real. And I kind of didn't need that uh, to happen. Thank you very much. And the, the piece of tile, you know, going into Rick flag reminded me of, uh, I think it's mortal Kombat 10. And I haven't, I haven't played it, but I've seen like footage of like the fatalities when they like, do the 3d of like the bones and the organs like bursting. I remember hearing stories of the people who animated on that. That was like, that really messed me up having to having to do that. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I think there were a few times, um, where it was just like, you made that too real for it to be enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you guys say that because I think back on times when the gore served me well and I think less about the actual gore and I think more about the gags that arose out of it that you could still have without the excessive gore. Um, I love when they cut the King Shark and he's just like chewing on a human bone and like you don't need That's fine. him tearing someone in half to get to that. I love the gag of you know them realizing that they accidentally killed the entire village of freedom fighters and you don't need to gruesomely kill the freedom fighters to have that be a bit yeah although i'm i'm on the fence about that one oh really as well it's like what would she really still want to work with them after right. they killed like 35 of her compatriots yeah i mean does she have a choice at that point yeah but she doesn't have to be so like well fine i guess i'm with you guys yeah, now. Right yeah. about it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, enough. exactly with how like realistic you're making some of the score to then have these like really comedic beats, they do kind of bump into each other. Yeah, right. This is something that happens with James Gunn. I think I think it worked all right in 
like Slither. Oh, don't say. talk about Slither. Oh. But I did. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> you know, I've seen like bits of Super, and for me, that's just a, it was just a little too dark, and I was just like, I'm not, I'm not having fun. Brightburn, similarly. Yeah, yeah, I've saw Brightburn as well, and it's almost awesome, and then it gets just a little too, a little too real, a little too grim to be fun anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, then I, I wish somebody had had rained gun in just a just, just a, a little, little bit, bit, just a teeny little bit here. <laughs> now, uh, Rick Flag, you know, they actually made you sad about his death, David. I mean, like. Rick Flagg was so boring in the first movie. <laughs> no. And then in this movie, they actually like, no, not just they give him depth, but like, I get him. I get his character in this one. And he actually fits really well alongside uh, Cena and, and Elba. And, uh, and then like when he dies, I was, I was like, oh, oh man. No, like I, yeah, I would have seen more of that character. I would have been happy with that. And he, I mean, he has a great yeah. line. You know, he goes out fighting Peacemaker. Uh, Peacemaker. And I thought like the contrast there of like mm. this conceived like ultra patriot versus like somebody who like I, I, you know, I will serve my country and I believe there is merit to it. But like also the people deserve to like know the truth mm-hmm. that, you know, that kind of a patriot uh, that you know, we, we hope for and want in our heroes. Uh, right. Yeah. It's my country right or wrong versus mm-hmm. I love my country, but it can do better. Right. Exactly. Yes. And, and like him, you know, peacemaker, what a, like what nothing joke it was. A, I'm sad mm-hmm. that it happened, but it's like, okay, that was, if he's got to go, good job. Yeah. Pl- well, I mean, this is also by far the most I've ever loved Joel Kinnaman in anything. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. He's just, I, I don't watch a lot of TV, so I haven't seen, like, the shows he's been on. The, I think I've seen him in, like, this and uh, the RoboCop reboot, which was not great. Yeah. He was fine in it. But this, I was like, okay, I get this guy. I get who this guy is. I get where he's coming from. I get what he wants. And... I kind of like him, or I de- and I certainly respect him. And then you you get to a really ugly death, and it's just like, oh, oh man, oh, <laughs> you did him dirty. But he gets that redemption he he didn't get the first time around. You know, he he gets the opportunity to be that that guy that sends the flash drive on over to Ratcatcher Two or whoever takes it after him. That he didn't really get any of that in Suicide Squad. So he was just this cardboard stand-in for authority right. throughout the entire movie, and it wasn't effective at all. So he's certainly more multifaceted in this role. Now, Nicole, a character that you care deeply about is named Ratcatcher 2. <laughs> um, which She's is adorable. So good. She's so sweet and adorable. She's just like this tired, exhausted college student sort of vibe she gives off. <laughs> And she loves her rat, you know? Oh, the rat is so cute. You know that Sebastian's a real rat that was used in a lot of the shots? And then they'd like CGI as well? I believe it. Rats are super smart. You can train them to do a lot of stuff. Wait, are you telling me they didn't actually train that rat to extend his hand? And then when he won't shake the hand. I know. (laughs) He looks so sad. (laughs) So sad. Yeah, I love Sebastian. And And when you see Sebastian as one of the rats climbing 
Starro. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You just don't want anything bad to happen to him. I know they're destroying yeah. an entire city, but God forbid something happens to Sebastian. If Sebastian dies, we riot. And Ratchcatcher, too, she has the, such this sad backstory and, you know, is living on the streets of Portugal with her father. And her father was a drug addict, but he was also a genius. And he taught her how to control the rats. And she understands that he had an addiction that he had a, that he had flaws but also that he loved her very much and she loved him tremendously and that doesn't dampen the affection that she has for her father and that's they carry that off incredibly well and the way that that's like delivered on the scene on the bus mm-hmm. it's like it's so interesting the way that that's shot and like really could not have worked but it surprisingly did yeah, and, and Taiko Atiti's at that place in his career now where they wanted to put his name on the marquee, so they got him for an afternoon to be Ratcatcher <laughs> 1. Uh, <laughs> he's, in, he's in three shots, like three separate shots in the movie, and that's, kind of, that's it. Yeah, for a total of maybe like two, a minute and a half, at, at, two minutes at maybe best. And apparently he's just making those rounds because I just started watching the new season of What We Do in the Shadows, and he's in the first episode for like 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, but I guess, hey, if you're making Star Wars movies, you don't have a lot of time for anything else. So maybe the cameos are the better way to do it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's great in it. Uh, so a couple of other other discussion topics. I'm glad they didn't Hollywoodify Starro from David. What do you mean by Hollywoodify? They didn't change his design. Like, they allowed it to be a giant pink starfish uh, <laughs> that shoots out other, like, horrifying starfishes that attach to your face. Oh, that and, was hideous. Y- yeah. I, I did not like that one bit. No. Uh, but they didn't, you know, they didn't, like, they, yeah, basically they just didn't change up the design. They didn't, like, try to mute the colors. They didn't uh, change it in any sort of, like, they didn't, like, give it a a voice which is actually something they've done in the comics and i don't always love how that's been didn't they off, though but, wasn't well, there like a voice well, in like, their heads there was like the person talking to them or, right, oh, right with the, the possessed person right which like that like totally works but i yeah like they totally could have tried to make it look more like oh it's cool space alien starfish mm-hmm. from outer space and they're just like nope giant pink starfish going around destroying <laughs> the the city and uh i was here for it also <laughs> Really loved uh, the the tease with the spear the whole time in the way that that uh, yeah. didn't pay off in in a way that was also yeah. still satisfying. Yeah, right. I was like, they, how in the world are they? Get, I I know it's coming somewhere. You know, when Javelin gives Harley his javelin and says, "You are you are the only one fit to carry my javelin," and somebody asks later, you know, what's what's the deal with that? She's like, "I'm waiting for God to tell me." <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm just like okay. And then she leaps and, and she, and she heroic leap it. and yep. uh, and then the rats are the ones that do it. The very conveniently placed ramp, right? <laughs> exactly. Yep. Of course, so. of course. Uh, and David, you, you, the way you describe kind of the Hollywoodifying of Starro reminds me of. And I, and I love this series, and everyone should watch it. But the Watchmen series on HBO, I've seen comic book images of what the squids are supposed to look like and they're very like multicolored and kind of funky looking and like there's like this like they're bright and yeah yeah there's like this like uh otherworldly part of them 
uh, because they're like aliens. And then the way the show did it is they're just like straight up squids falling on people. And they're like kind of like dark colored, you know, grizzly looking squids. And they, that's because that show was, was going for a much, much more realistic tone, I suppose, as realistic as, as Watchmen can be because they were trying to shoehorn in some, some more intense and aggressive social commentary rather than this like watchmen is like here's a meditation on racial race relations and then this movie's like imperialism is bad so like there's different levels of of quite how much depth they had to their political messaging but point being is like they did kind of hollywoodify that because the whole tone of that show is like dark and grisly and i like i like that they didn't do it with sorrow i agree yeah so yeah yeah and it, they didn't make it they didn't make it look quite like the uh the original i guess this must the origin of starro must have had something to do there's an old old japanese movie called warning from space where the monster is a giant starfish with one eye dead in the middle yeah. um i think it's a lot smaller but <laughs> i'm i'm pretty sure whoever thought up starro had seen and enjoyed that film um but yeah, I both liked and didn't liked the the coloring. You know, I was like, think it's like ah, oh, you know, I could have bought it a little more if they'd like muted it down a little bit. But then I thought, you know, if tropical starfish are brilliant, bright colors, and sure, why not? <laughs> I, I, I and also not that... bending to that and just saying <laughs> no, we're going to stick to how it looks in the comics. Yeah. We're going to keep it this color. We're going to make it. The size of you know three buildings or gonna whatever. Yeah, so. it's cool. Right, I, I I do wish they hadn't shot their shot on on Starro in the trailers though. I think it would have been fun if the if the reveal of Starro, especially as bonkers as Starro is, if that had just been in the movie. Um, but we oh, all knew no, see, I lucked out. I hadn't seen any trailers oh, and okay. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, because like you know, there's this like so we can talk about Capaldi now. You know, as the thinker, you know, Capaldi has been you know uh, brought on board to, for many many years to to uncover the secrets of Starro to weaponize Starro, and and they they build up to it the entire time that there's this secret you know horrific weapon from outer space in this giant tower, and Capaldi knows all about it and he's worked with it, and then you see all the scary experiments Nicole mentioned, and then it's it's kind of ridiculous giant you know starfish and that would have been a fun build to not have spoiled by the marketing i i do think that yeah i don't know i i, I get you and yeah it's one of those things where it's like oh cool starro's gonna be in this but it would have been fun to just have it be like oh starro's in this yeah oh starro is the black ops project that they're after you know <laughs> yeah. yeah right though i i do gotta give i i think i love capaldi and everything he's in i think pierre capaldi mm. is just a an actor that just throws himself into his characters in a in such a enthusiastic manner, and I've never seen him phone it in. And mm -hmm. I think the same can be said for the thinker. And I think oh, the yeah. thinker plays with some of that Malcolm Tucker that we've seen in the past anger, you know. And they let him have fun with that. Yeah, he, in the in the extras, he was like, you know, who hasn't wanted to play a mad scientist, evil genius? <laughs> so, yeah, he got to play a mad scientist good genius for all those years with Doctor Who. Now he gets to play the evil one. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I also think uh, side jag. 
I also think the fact that because he was an older Doctor Who has mean that he has been able to flourish after that role and do weird things like this, Wait, whereas we haven't seen a ton of the others. Um, uh, but, well, I mean, oh, David Tennant has a very... Yeah, he's been a busy Doctor boy. Doctor Who's as a whole, though. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't, um, I don't, I don't know. There some of the modern that. Doctors have, have, have careers, but by and large, by the numbers, the majority of them do not. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, no, but fair, fair. Um, no, I mean, and, and literally... Matt Smith is in a movie I want to see right now by Edgar Wright. So, no, they, they do get a lot of roles. So, uh, DJ Flula makes the promotional extras worth watching. I don't actually think I know what this is, Nicole. When I have murdered many people or slaughtered a cow, uh, it's always good to know that uh, I may uh, you know, wash away the blood, but um, not the memories. Those stay forever. What? Well, d- I had never heard of this guy. I, you know, I was, I'm watching the extras and they're talking to the guy who plays Javelin over and over again. And he's hilarious. And I'm like, who is this guy? And I had to go look him up and I'm like, I don't want to sound dismissive by saying this, but I'm just going to, you know, he's a YouTuber primarily. That's where he sort of. That was sort of his his springboard. He'd been DJing and a musician for a while in Germany and, uh, you know, got popular on YouTube. And I'm not sure how he got cast in this. I guess he moved to Los Angeles a while ago. So he well, he was in Pitch Perfect, too. Um, Okay, he had a big role there. He's also he's also like really good friends with Conan. Um, If you want to see high quality Conan content. Go look up anytime Conan has hung out with Flula Borg. Um, mm-hmm. It's great. I went and saw like Conan did his the stand up show where he was like touring a few years back. In the like the opener and hype person was Flula, and that was like I had known of him from like some Conan clips. That was the first time I really like recognized who he was though, because I was like, this guy is great and he's so much fun. Yeah. And I went and looked at a bunch of his stuff, and uh, I mean, it's if you're looking for a good. Uh, you know, a, a good, entertaining, uh, wacky German. Yeah, Flula <laughs> Borg is your man. Yeah, I'm on YouTube right now watching a video of him dancing in the middle of the street wearing a thong, and there is a GoPro attached to the thong that he regularly cuts <laughs> the clips of while he's auto-tuning covers of Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke. All right, and, this is something I need to go see. Yeah, I'm going to put this in our <laughs> chat. Uh, and, 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 and then on the video description, it just says, Boom! Hello to you. I am Flula, a German man of adventure and music and many other items of dopeness. <laughs> if you can't hear what I try to say, if you can't read the words that's on my page, maybe I'm going deaf, maybe I'm going blind, maybe I'm out of my mind. I know you about it. He's here for this. He's really great. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. See you soon. And, oh, yes, dance. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that makes it so much better that he had, like, a three-minute role in this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, um, I, I, he's the one that I'm the, I'm the maddest they, they killed so early. Because, really? Oh, because I'm, I, what if Flula's in a movie, I want as much Flula as they can give me. <laughs> I, I was kind of hoping Davidson would stick around, but it also seemed fitting with a man that has barely any acting experience. That's probably yeah. good to just kill him. Yeah, just Yay. get him out of the way. I also feel like it could it could 
it could throw the movie because you're too busy watching Pete Davidson be Pete Davidson. Yeah. And even the character was just Pete Davidson. So I don't know who that is. He's, uh, <laughs> he was on SNL, dated Ariana Grande, broke up with Ariana Grande. Ariana was engaged Gr- to Ariana Grande. Keep up. He, yeah. Was, was dating P- Kate Beckinsale. We all were weird about the age difference, but that was a thing. Well, you need to keep up to date with this. And the people. only reason I bring up the Ariana Grande stuff is because she, you know, she wrote some pretty good music during that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, he's he's the he's the dude that's afraid of weasel in the air in the airplane. He's the, yes. He gets his face blown <laughs> off. In the, yeah, that's yes. really no. I mean, I I know that he plays Blackguard and and that he dies early. Just like who just he was like, outside I, of that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah, yeah. know who he was before this. The, the also like they never established what his power was at all or what he did. No, too dumb. Like, what does Blackguard do? Yeah, and and I guess now that I'm dialing back, thinking of that opening, I know we've talked about Weasel dying a couple times, but I, you do have to love the bit where they're like, "Wait, did no one check to see if Weasel could swim?" Oh, that was <laughs> dropping really, yeah. people into the water. And and, and, and I love is like this silence in the room, like the ops room, in the control when room, everyone's yeah. looking at each other. Like, did did we not check that? I thought that was so and so's job. Yeah, I, I also love that. the uh, the the coup that happens within the control room against Amanda Waller yes. at some point. I can't remember who hits her upside the head with a. I think it's just one of the control people hits her upside the head with a pole. You know, this is around the time that Starro's rampaging and she's about to kill right. the Suicide Squad. If you know when they want to save the town, God, Viola Davis, my man, really good. <laughs> Uh, last discussion topics of which we have none because we finished. So <laughs> that means we're at the end of the show. Uh, guys, I, I submit myself to the panel. I will say that again, I think this is a classic within superhero movies that superhero fans will love this for years to come. I see the potential. I will agree to the potential. I admit I was extremely skeptical when you said you were pitching this as a future classic. I was like, Brett, who hurt you <laughs> that this is what you're throwing out there? And then I said, you know, I said I would admit if I was wrong. I don't, if you're going to couch it as a classic of the superhero genre, I think, I think it's still going to need a little time to yeah. marinate before that becomes clear. But it's certainly a lot of fun. And I would definitely, you know, if you've got a strong enough stomach for the for the gore factor, then I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. No, my mom called me up and she's like, I really like the last one. And I'm like, not this one. No, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Yeah. This, <laughs> they're different movies. Uh, definitely. Yeah, they are definitely different. I think this movie works so well because we have had a decade plus now of the superhero genre and... Look, there's some Marvel movies I really like, but like a lot of it is is very much the like you could play random scenes from any of the movies and they're all going to look like each other. Uh, but mm-hmm. but Shang Chi is great. Go see Shang Chi. I legitimately love Shang Chi. But this I think only happens because we've had ten years of of Marvel, and uh, I think I agree with Nicole. It's a little bit too soon to tell but i think in like 10 to 20 years when we're writing our big think pieces about the era of superhero films you know i think this is one that is going to stand out um and that people are going to uh to talk about cool i'll take it i'll take it i'll take that as a half win uh yeah it's it's just a fun movie i mean i also i also think that people might think back to this movie as the weird year and a half where we were able to watch big releases at home because 
as we start seeing the big movies for 2022, and 2022 is going to be a colossal year for film. The amount of intensity coming out of 2022 is insane. And all those movies are marketing themselves as exclusively only in theaters. And they're pushing really hard away from this, you know, hybrid release model that, you know, Disney and, and Warner and HBO tried out during the pandemic. And I don't think we're going to get a lot of that anymore unless, God forbid, the pandemic just drags on forever. Uh, we hope not, but we've got point, it at least through Matrix Resurrection. Yeah, right. Um, uh, but point being is that I do think there are going to be movies like The Suicide Squad, maybe even like some Disney ones like Mulan or something or Ray of the Last Dragon dune and then matrix where those are going to be the movies where people are like oh yeah remember the year where we got to watch that at home you know instead of in the theater and it was a major release and we didn't even have to pay extra for it because hbo max just included it whereas disney was charging like 30 bucks uh i just think that that's a weird relic of the time that we lived in and how it will not last forever and i will say i i'm sad for that because i think if not purely for accessibility reasons i love the fact that i've been able to talk to more people about the suicide squad because People who've been able to see it that are immunocompromised, who don't want to go to the theater, who might not live near a theater, who might not financially want to go to a theater, but it's a very, very expensive to go to the movies, whereas you can you know, swing an HBO subscription. Um, I think there's a lot of social good to come out of that. Yeah, and maybe people with physical dif- disabilities right. that make yeah. it difficult or just really strenuous to get to a theater, you know, use up all their spoons for the day just to get to the theater in the first place kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I am very glad for the accessibility, but oh, I I miss <laughs> I miss the big screen oh, and the big sound I, system so much. Oh, and don't get me wrong, <laughs> I miss it too. And in the pre-show, Nicole and I were talking about the couple of movies we badly wish we could go see right now. So I, I miss them. I agree. Yeah, and I saw Shang Chi over the weekend in a big theater at Alamo. Um, and like, there's just some moments of that movie that I am glad I got to see on a, on a big screen. Very cool. Alrighty. Well, that's the suicide squad next week. A reminder, we are watching David summer, summer wars, summer wars. Check that out. That is an anime for around the world next week. We'll see you then. But David, what do you have going on in your life? Oh, people can always check out Hit Me One More Time, hitmeonemoretime.com, or wherever you get your podcasts, and then Davla's D-A-V-L-U-Z, on the uh, the socials. Very good. And what about you, Nicole? Yeah, nothing. Man. No. Um, <laughs> I run our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast, and you can interact with us there. I always post when a new episode goes up there, so... Turn on your notifications and uh, you'll know when new stuff comes out if you're not visiting our website regularly, which, you know, you should because Brett's put a lot of work into it. Yeah. 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 We, we've <laughs> changed it around a little bit and it's mgrpodcast.com, which is uh, going to be your go-to source for all this stuff, which is great. We've done a couple housekeeping things lately. You should start seeing things like, you know, the, the album art in your podcatcher is going to change depending on the show that we're doing and the movie that we're talking about. And there's some cool stuff we're doing in that regard, but certainly check that out. A reminder on mgrpodcast.com. You can also be involved in, you did this to us every five weeks. You get to vote on what we're watching, but you can find me Brett Stewart at I am Brett Stewart on Twitter. And then I'll do it for myself, Nicole and David. We'll see you next week for around the world. Oh yes. Look at my blurred lines. Dance with me out. 
I am a good girl. I am a good, good girl.